Instead of just focusing your professional time, 70% on one thing, 30% on meetings and trainings, you get to be an expert in a hundred different things by the time you're, you really fulfilled yourself in your career. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will teach you how to build wealth with real estate without buying yourself another job. I'm your host, Taylor Lote, and today our guest is Danny Simard. Danny is a Navy veteran, and today he is a commercial property manager. He's based in Southern California, and today we're digging into the state of the commercial real estate market, specifically offices. We're talking about what has happened with office investing in the office market since the COVID pandemic and prior to that, what's going on with pricing, occupancy, and everything around the state of the office market. We talk about how prices are falling and whether it would be wise or not for investors to start looking at office investing today, his opinion, and so much more. There is plenty of distress in the office market today. We're getting a great window into what's happening and how investors can approach the office market from the perspective of a commercial property manager and real estate expert. It's a great conversation, especially if you're interested in the future of commercial real estate and office investing. There's so much information conversation. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lode. I'm a real estate investor, and I focus on multifamily and self-storage investing. To date, I've acquired, partnered on, or had a hand in over $250 million of commercial real estate acquisitions. If you'd like to learn more about potentially partnering with us in the future, just go to investwithtaylor.com or click the link in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every weekday. Now, let's get with Danny. Danny, thank you for joining us today. For our listeners out there, could you tell us about what you do in the commercial and residential real estate space? Hi. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I kind of exist in the real estate world in two different worlds, uh, both residential and commercial. I've been a California real estate broker since 2014, so uh, over nine years, and mostly represented buyers and sellers, mostly focusing on my extended network, friends and family in Los Angeles, Orange County, and San Diego. And for my day job, since 2020, I've been a commercial property manager, and my assets have been in the office, industrial, and a little bit of retail space as well. So yeah, in short, that's what I do. Staying busy. So let's start with the basics and talk about what a commercial property manager does, because I think everybody out there is going to have a picture in their mind of what a property manager does in the context of rentals and multifamily, single family, that kind of a thing. But in the commercial space, what is there to really manage from the property management perspective? Like, what do you have to do for the responsibilities? Yeah, that's a great question. And you're, you, I think the setup is perfect because the residential world is completely different. And uh, a lot of times, like I came from the residential world into the commercial world and I was like, oh, can't be that bad. The context is just a little bit different, but really it's a whole other world. Within the commercial space, as you know, working with in the institutional world, there's tons of different people involved in all the different this whole like product life cycle of a property, Enti you know, acquisition, entitlement, development, leasing and marketing and sale, you know, repositioning, renovation, and then you know, disposition and, and demolition and starting over. So what I do, it, my column is operations for existing buildings. So we do kind of everything. And I like to say when I speak to students at my school here in uh, Long Beach, that instead of just focusing your professional time, 70% on one thing, 30% on meetings and trainings, you get to be an expert in a hundred different things by the time you're, you've really fulfilled yourself in your career. So it's literally everything from walking around in bathrooms on some floor in my office building with the janitor and saying, Hey, like, let's, I'm doing an inspection here. Like, this is not to park. Can you please clean this up? Or 
to working with architects and engineers to design new spec office spaces, to working with brokers who are working with clients to lease up spaces, acquisition and disposition. I've been a part of building sales and building purchases where you are very involved in the due diligence period. So even though I'm not working directly with an acquisitions or an asset manager person, I'm, you know, give it a big long checklist of like, hey, when we take over operations, how are all 30 of these things going to get sorted out? And it's everything from collecting rent. Uh, that's obviously the big topic. One of the basic ones, right? It's what contracts do we have in place? And that could be engineering, janitorial, landscaping, interior and exterior. What kind of relationships do we have with any uh, bids, business improvement districts in your city or in your area? What kind of security, you know, situation do we have with the police? What's our emergency procedures? I've got one of them right here that I needed. I need to update, right? So it's a ton of different things. And those are just a few of the bullet points. So hopefully that kind of answers the question. Yeah, there's a lot there. So mm -hmm. and as an investor, property managers take a lot off of our shoulders so that we can earn passive income and sit back and focus on the next investment. There is a management aspect of, involved there. Mm -hmm. But what would you say is the most difficult part of your job in managing a commercial property? I'm going to give you kind of two answers. And one of them is sort of priority and project management, so to say, because there are so many different things going on. And you, know, you are the first point of contact. So if a tenant calls because a light bulb is out or you know, a toilet's busted or something is wrong or there's a security violation, you're that person who's supposed to answer the phone. And it might not be me particularly as a property manager. Uh, I could have an office with staff that handles those sort of things. But, you know, I'm also just like the the proverbial in the residential world. I don't want to get calls at two o'clock in the morning on Saturday about a plumbing call. Well, that's me. Fortunately, in the office world, we don't get those on the weekends very often. But, you know, yes, like it's, you know, it's the weekday right now. If somebody has, you know, a plumbing issue, they're going to call my office or they're going to email me. So I say it's sort of managing, working on, your projects where you really need to commit and stay focused on your time and not being interrupted, but also, you know, having to manage when those interruptions happen, handling them, you know, having good customer service and, and going back to those things. And I think the other thing, especially right now, like I mentioned, I'm in office and I'm sure we'll talk about sort of what the current market is like, but in the office world, we are really stuck between a rock and a hard place in most office properties. And that means we're stuck between trying to keep our tenants happy and deliver good class A professional services and deliver a great product, so to say, like a space for people to come to park to to do their business and meet their clients, but also focus on NOI, net operating income, right? Because it's, you know, leasing has been trickling down since 2020, and we're not going to see the full effects of this until probably 2030. But and, and definitely it's going to be hard for the next two years, I would say. 2025 is when we'll start to see like the beginnings of the aftermath of the reckoning that office is going through. So we're really focusing on trying to deliver good services while also cut costs. And that's you know, kind of like a, a, I think most businesses want to do that to some degree, but it's especially difficult right now in the office world in particular. Yeah, I can understand that. I'm glad you mentioned the 800 pound gorilla in the office right now, which is mm -hmm. the declining occupancies and all the issues in the office market today. So let's talk about your perspective on that and what's happening. You gave us a few ominous warnings about what might be coming into the future over the next two years and then until 2030. But let's dig a little bit deeper and talk about what you see on the horizon for the office market. Totally. Yeah. So what I'm seeing in general, the very, very short answer is, yeah, low occupancy and low leasing. 
negative net absorption in the office markets. And this is in most places, I think. I don't follow too much of the macro trends, but I can really speak intelligently about Southern California. Another hot topic or, or key phrase that is that is popular right now, and I'm mentioning it here because I think it just so succinctly explains what's going on and its flight to quality. I'm sure you've heard this recently, that the trophy assets are doing just fine. I'll give you a specific example. The first property that I got hired into when I started in my career was at US Bank Tower, which is the tallest tower in downtown LA, and it gets blown up in a whole bunch of action movies and stuff like that. And so that I started right at the beginning of the pandemic. That was a third party assignment. So the company I worked for was a third party property manager, which is, you know, common in the commercial world as it is in residential. The owner, the rest of their portfolio, to my understanding, at least, was uh, hospitality assets. And it was the beginning of the pandemic. So they were not, you know, getting any revenue at that time. So they had to sell. They sold about six months later. And they sold to a very prominent developer and owner manager from New York City, Silverstein Properties. What they did is they spent, I don't know the number, but I want to say it's like tens of millions of dollars renovating the whole building and repositioning it and really putting a ton of effort into say like, hey, if you want to be in the most premier office space in downtown Los Angeles, US Bank Tower is it. And that's what Silverstein has successfully done. They've done a good job of, of uh, marketing that to you know the, the CRE world. And uh, I just keep seeing these news articles like, oh, Silverstein signed another lease, signed another lease. Their lease up is doing really good, at least from the outside. I'm just speaking to public information here. So properties like that are doing just fine. They're signing record breaking leases with record high rents and their occupancy is approaching 100 percent, just like we see most often in the residential world. Right. But if you're not in that crew bit of crop. So many businesses are restructuring what their office footprint is. They're moving to other markets. They're moving to the suburbs and they are really reconfiguring what they need. And so that is putting a ton of downward pressure on rents and also just on overall demand. I don't have the statistic off my, the top of my head, but uh, I can tell you anecdotally, seeing a handful of office buildings around downtown Los Angeles, where I'm at, is there are plenty of buildings that are way, way far away from 100% leased. Uh, and I think pre-pandemic, the numbers were in like the 80 to 90% across many submarkets, at least up. And we're seeing occupancies sometimes less than 50%, which, you know, is kind of like crazy. You have a whole, you know, mid-rise or high-rise building or even like a business park in the suburbs that just doesn't have a whole lot of people in it. And that's, that's just a pretty big trend for things that are not class A++ properties. So is that leading to owners looking at giving significant concessions to potential office tenants? I mean, are, this seems like kind of an obvious question, but, or maybe there's an obvious answer to this, but are folks losing buildings back to the bank in the office space kind of left and right? Is that what you're expecting for the next couple of years? And what does all of this downward pressure on occupancy mean in terms of cash flows and the health of the ownership market generally? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll give just a very, very quick aside explainer. I'm sure plenty of your audience will know this, but in the residential world, a lot of people get 30-year fixed rate Fannie Freddie loans, and those are wonderful. And those are great for homeowners and, and for small-time investors. In the commercial world, a lot of time it's A, floating rate debt, B, short-term debt. And the debt structuring is a lot more complicated than it is in the residential world, generally speaking. The reason why I mentioned the three to five and 10-year sort of landmarks is Q1 of 2020 is when COVID-19 hit the Western world and the whole world, really. And that's when commercial real estate deals came to a screeching halt, and especially in the office world, because everyone was working from home. A lot of the terms of these, you know, mezzanine loans and just the, all these different sort of debt structures that the commercial world uses 
are in the three to five year range. And more often than not, they're t- less than 10 years. So that's why you've seen in the news with interest rates rising throughout 2023, a lot of investors have defaulted. And the big reason why is because just like with you know re- five plus unit residential, banks will look at the sort of capitalization method. Like they'll look at what does this property earn, not what does the borrower earn as far as income to qualify you for the mortgage, right? So if you have a debt service coverage ratio of 1.3 or 1.25 for an office building, because when you originate the loan, your lease assumptions are up, we're 85% lease. And I expect over the next two years to be 90% lease. And here are my rent assumptions. It's going to be 5% per year for the next two years. And that's what our rent growth should be. And then a bank looks at like that and says, oh, let's run the comps. Good to go. We'll originate your loan. Well, when your assumptions, when your priors are completely upended after the fact, it makes it really, really hard. Because if you look at those ratios, look, here's your debt service payment. Let's call it $1 million a month, which those are like real numbers in, in the, you know, the institutional world, right? And your NOI is $1.7 million a month. And that's based on you know, all of your tenants at 80 plus percent paying rent. And with the lease assumptions you have going forward. Well, when you have some fraction of your tenants throughout 2020 to now to 2023, defaulting on their loans, not renewing, paying early termination fees because they're like, it's just not worth it. It's worth it for us to just buy ourselves out of our lease and just go fully remote or move to another state or something like that. And then all of a sudden, oh, wow, my NOI is $600,000 and your debt payments are a million dollars. At some point, like plenty of landlords have a lot of confidence, let's say. And so they're willing to, you know, hold the bag, so to say, and, and weather out the storm. But sometimes you can't. And I'll give you one example that hit the news this year. Brookfield defaulted on a loan that was a package of two office buildings in downtown L.A. Uh, it was Triple uh, Seven Figueroa and the gas company tower, I believe. So those are two big, tall. You look at the, the, the stock photography of the L.A. skyline. It's two of the biggest towers you see. And triple seven fig is now for sale, actually. So, you know, Brookfield defaulted on that and they're going through special servicing. And I believe they have to sell one of those buildings because the special service is requiring them to do so. So hopefully that kind of answers the question of like structurally where it comes from. And then the reality on the results of what this monumental shift in the office world is doing to especially office investors. So anytime I see a market in distress or, or an investment asset that's in distress like office appears to be in in most markets today. Certainly not every office like you said, but a whole heck of a lot of them. There's a lot of sector-wide problems happening today. I wonder what's the potential upside, right? Because all of these buildings are now trading at, heck, I don't know, based on the NOI figures that you gave or the very examples that you gave, maybe less than half of what they used to trade at. And assuming that it's still a structurally sound building and a reasonably, you know, decent neighborhood and everything like that. There's probably some value there. At least I wonder if there is some value there, but are we in a place where an enterprising company or investor could take advantage of that and see upside on the back end once the dust kind of settles if that makes sense? So what's your perspective on looking at the industry and the current levels of distress in the office industry? And, and looking for that upside on the back end when things do recover, if they do recover. Is that potential there? The short answer is yes. And I'll give you sort of two avenues there. One is I've heard just again, anecdotally, that there's a lot of investors with a lot of dry powder who want to buy up these assets when they finally do go for sale. And so once, you know, 
the landlords and owners that, you know, eventually call it quits and say, fine, I'm selling at a loss, you know, which hurts your ego and it hurts your reputation, of course. You know, once that finally happens, I think there will be some pretty savvy buys. And one thing you alluded to is less than 50% of purchase price. That is true. You can look and see some comp sales for office buildings that were purchased between, let's say, 2016 and 2020 that are have been up for sale or who, that have sold in the last uh, couple of years. They are selling for like less than 50% of those prices. I'll give you another example that I've heard about here in downtown LA. There's a mid-rise 100 plus year old Art Deco, you know, historic building called uh, Pack Mutual. Pack Mutual was purchased for, I want to say, $200 million in, I think, 2017, 2018, if I recall correctly. It got listed for sale for $100 million, I believe, late last year. And last I had heard through the rumor mill was there were a couple of offers that were that were under $100 million. I'm not sure where that landed, but I mean, yeah, that's a big hit. And, and that's an institutional investor. Like, to my rec- recollection, that investor manages a pension fund. So you're hurting in the aggregate, you know, the bottom line for, an, you know, a pension fund, you know, people's retirements. So that's, that's rough. Secondly is yes. Well, the next thing I wanted to mention actually was adaptive reuse. That's something that I'm certainly no adaptive use expert, but I can speak to it at least generally. And this is often a topic that comes up like, oh, why don't we just take all these office buildings that no one wants to go work in and convert them to apartments? And without going too into the weeds, it's a much, much harder and really it's just much more expensive than it seems. And a lot of the good candidates for adaptive use to convert to residential or mixed use residential plus probably retail. Those have already been done. And really adaptive use has been popular in places like California for decades. Uh, it's just become much more of a hot topic now that the it's so prescient to the idea that, oh, uh, empty office buildings, housing crisis, like one plus one equals two, right? Those are the, sort of the two main answers. I, I do think that going back to positioning and, you know, flight to quality, I think that with you know, at the right cost basis, anything's a good deal, right? So, you know, if you're able to get an office building at the right discounted price and start your underwriting from there, you could probably get a nice return with the right capital improvements and with the right you know, repositioning and the right marketing and kind of the right luck. You got to just have the right, you know, tenant in mind or tenants in mind to lease up the space and take advantage of the work you've done and, uh, you know, earn you a nice return. That, that's sort of my, my general rents, I suppose. Sure. There's an awful lot there. I do wonder how much this is impacting or will impact the the capital markets, all the mortgage-backed securities out there that are based around office mortgages and things like that. And that's for much smarter people than me to to go figure Thank out. But in this context of a property that sold for $200 million, for example, is listed for 100 and is getting offers for 80 these days, just to stick with those numbers, to what extent are those buyers today kind of catching the falling knife? I mean, we don't want to be too early, right? And still mm-hmm. paying too much if we're considering this. So I do wonder if we're really quite there and the distress is bad enough, if you will, to make it make sense today. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, that, that's a really good point. And like I kind of mentioned in the, the last point of there are some pretty good buys to be had at the right cost basis. There are definitely some, you know, falling knives, like using your analogy out there too. You know, there's, if you just like in anything in real estate, location, 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 like location absolutely matters, but those factors, input factors for location are changing, especially when it comes to office. And so you really have to check your priors. If you think like, oh, like in my market here, downtown Los Angeles, like it's been an important 
financial and entertainment and business district for a long time. Like, what could go wrong? <laughs> well, we just don't know. You know, another big elephant in the room right now is we were just filed for bankruptcy. We were a huge tenant. Like, you know, there are some buildings that are fully leased to WeWork. And so they are now earning no money. And so, you know, just because because WeWork went out of business uh, or, you know, whatever, they're restructuring, they're going through bankruptcy, that is going to allow courts to cancel leases. And that's going to completely screw over plenty of landlords and plenty of buildings. To more succinctly answer your question, yes, there are still lots of traps out there. And honestly, I don't think any of us have the answer. We None of us have the secret sauce or the equation to figure out exactly, you know, what buildings and what locations are going to endure and be successful investments over the next seven to 10 years. I think anyone who says that, you should really uh, take that with a grain of salt. You know, it's I think there's way too many variables there. Unless you have the ability to control some element of the of the market, right? Like if you have an investor that is a big tenant or is able to influence the ability for a submarket to really turn around for any asset class, then, you know, there's something there. But beyond that, I just don't know, honestly. And I don't think anyone does either. Wow. So before we go to the three questions I ask every guest in the show, I wonder what types of calls you're getting from property owners today. Like wh what level of panic are they feeling right now? Because I think that would be probably a good leading indicator for the next maybe six months to a year out of the market. Like mm -hmm. how much panic are you seeing from owners? In my personal experience, which is just, you know, a small subsample, I only manage a couple of buildings and I've worked for a few different institutional level landlords in my past several years. One of my past employers has just done a really good job of, you know, being savvy investors for the long run and has felt basically zero distress since 2020. So I think, you know, one thing to say is there is that the fundamentals are, are still there in a lot of ways. You know, if you think about invest for the long term and buy good quality assets in great locations, I think that's going to be that's going to do well. The kinds of things that I am seeing, not necessarily hearing directly from owners, because I don't necessarily interact directly with owners at my level, but it's a lot of what I've talked about before. And it's this standoffishness to sell, even if the numbers don't make sense because I think it's this determination to weather the storm. But, you know, there is, I, I don't know if panic is quite the right word, but it, there is definitely a sense of concern and a hyper-focus on, on cost-cutting, on NOI, and on doing whatever it takes to market properties and get new leases. And just as another aside, um, there is leasing activity happening. Like Even in my building, there's been some smaller, but new leases going on in the building that I'm in right now. What matters is the total absorption uh, when you think about it from the investment perspective. But it's not that the office market is completely dead. There are still small businesses that need office space and need to expand and open satellite offices. So that's sort of a thing. So, you know, the industry is not completely desolate and stagnant. But yeah, the, the biggest sort of fears that I'm reading in the room is the long-term viability of certain assets. And again, just like the, when do we call it quits? When do we sell at a loss? When do we let this go? When do we hand these, this back to the, these keys back to the lender? You know what I mean? So those are the feelings that I am vibing in the room, as it were, as the kids are saying these days. Got it. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, Danny, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? I am ready. Let's go. Great. First one, what is your number one book recommendation? I'll add the caveat that honestly, I don't read, read too much. I don't read books, but I have. And this is definitely a cop out, but it's just true. Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki. It is the book that I read while I spent you know, uh, time on in the Navy on deployments that transformed me from 
being a teenager into thinking like an adult and specifically like a, like a business-minded adult and thinking about finance, I think, correctly. So I would say Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Love it. I've got one of my copies right over my shoulder here. I recommend everybody go check out yes. Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Question number two, who or what inspires you? Uh, financial freedom. You know, I think you know, we live in a capitalist world and whether you like it or not, you can have your, your reasonable criticisms of it, but it's the game we all have to play. So the best thing to do is to get good at the game and find a way to beat the game. And to me, that is, you know, financial independence. So everything I do is building skills, occupying my time such that I can get myself to retirement on my own terms. You know, I'm not waiting for a pension or just a 401k. I am investing. I am diversifying my skill set so that I can expand and, and, you know, work upon through multiple avenues. Like I mentioned, I work both commercial and residential. So if office completely explodes, then I can still sell people houses. You know what I mean? And vice versa. Good spot to be in. Question number three, think about Danny at 80 years old. What mm -hmm. advice does he give to Danny of today? Say yes more. I already am kind of like a yes, let's just try it kind of person. But I do think that I'm going to give you two answers, though. That's one of them. Say yes, you know, take reasonable risks. Risks are good and they're generally rewarded in our society. And no matter what you, whether you win or lose, you will learn by taking smart risks. The second thing I will say is focus on relationships. I speak to college students, a few student business organizations in my area, and I give advice about the real estate industry and just general career stuff. And one of the things that I always emphasize is get involved in your clubs, you know, go to those parties. You're not going to care what grade you got on the midterm of some class you don't remember 10 years from now, but you are going to remember the friends you made and the experiences you had. And those things are truly enduring. And that's what makes us special as humans. And so professionally, personally, focus on relationships. You know, when you feel a little bit lazy and you're like, I should maybe go, but maybe not, I don't want to go to the thing, whatever it happens to be, professional networking, party, family reunion, just say yes. You won't regret it. I appreciate that. And I appreciate that you said yes to speaking with us today and sharing your experience. If folks want to reach out and get in touch or learn more about what you're up to, where can they find you? Sure. Yeah. I try to stay somewhat active on LinkedIn. So I'm Danny Simard on LinkedIn. My Instagram, I, I'm sure you'll be able to put it in subtitles, but it's at Danny Sims. And yeah, my website's dannysimard.com, which coming soon, that'll be what I will be doing professionally on the side as well. Love it. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I appreciate that so much. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every weekday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one.